Hi, I'm Teresita. And I'm Dick. And welcome to week one of our podcast, From the Hovel to the Big House. History has always held a great fascination for me. Until now, I haven't taken the time or probably hadn't the time to try to understand the strands that make up our society. So I've teamed up with Teresita, who is a historian. And over the next few weeks, we will look at the evolution of social history in Ireland. You can think of me as the man at the bear, asking the kind of questions a man at the bear would ask. I'm a social historian, and in my opinion, social history is just as important as every other discipline of history. Well, I've always believed that history consisted of wars and battles and territory disputes and uh, murder and all that. The kind of blood and guts type Blood and guts, exactly. (laughs) Well, I hope to open your mind a little bit on this podcast because, in my opinion, all of history matters. Every discipline of history, whether it's political, economic, social military it all comes together to help us understand our past um and as social history is my own particular area that's what we'll be discussing today it's always said isn't it that those who don't follow don't study their history are doomed to repeat the mistakes of previous generations that is very true and something that unfortunately we have seen over and over again in irish history Okay, you can start telling me about the people that ran this county that were the most prominent people back in the time. Well, as I said, I'm a social historian and Irish high, what we could call Irish high society is uh, my own area. So that's looking at the big house. My own particular area of research was masters and servants in 18th century Ireland. And lately I have been looking more into the big houses of Clare, who lived there, how they lived. And I've learned quite a lot. Tell me about the Drumolan Castle is the one that would come to my mind immediately. Yes, and Drumolan Castle, uh, which until it was sold as a hotel, was owned by the O'Brien family, who are the Barons of Inchquin. They were also the Earls of Thomond. And they would probably be the leading aristocratic family in the county over the centuries. So, you know, you have a big house like Drumolan Castle, which is really big. In Ireland as a whole, the the top of the aristocracy was the Duke of Leinster, who owned Carton House and Leinster House, which is now where the Irish Parliament sit. But throughout the county and throughout the country, you had a lot of what we could call, you know, smaller big houses, because in many ways, the big house was a culture rather than a size. Would they be mostly Catholics who switched over to the Protestant faith over the centuries? Well, some of them certainly were. Um, it was kind of a mix. I mean, you had people who were brought over specifically during the plantations and planted onto the land here. And then you had people like even the O'Briens who were originally uh, Gaelic lords who, um, you know, ultimately did a deal with the crown, I suppose is, is the only way of putting it. And, you know, may have switched the Protestant faith and occupied the big houses. So there was a, a mix, I think, in that regard. 
Would the people that were brought home from England, would they be generally of the aristocratic or upper class or would they be just ordinary Joe Soaps who were willing to travel over and adventurers, you might say? Again, a mixture. Um, definitely there were some adventurers. There were people who were owed a favour by the different by whoever was the monarch at that time because of maybe military service they'd done or something like that. Also, some of the big landowners in the UK already, like about what is now the UK in England, such as people like the, the families like the Duke of Devonshire, um, were given land in Ireland as well as the estates they had maybe in England or Scotland or Wales. So again, you're talking about quite a, a mix of people. So we'll go back to Drumolan Castle. The headman was... Well, the headman, they have actually quite a complicated history. I'm not going to go too much into it because... Originally, they were the princes of Thomond in the old Gaelic lord system. Now, when they did, uh, they, they had revolts and things, when they did eventually have settlements against the crown, you know, which would have been 700 years ago, um, they were given a number of titles. So these included, some of them were called the Baronets uh, O'Brien. Now, they were the ones who, who, originally, who lived in Dromoland. There was also the Earls of Thomond and... Um, the Baron St. Quinn, and they were all members that they were all parts of the O'Brien family. But the, the title that actually survived to the present day is the Baron St. Quinn. So they were, so that is the title in the peerage of the United Kingdom. And so that would put them in the actual aristocracy. Okay. And further down the chain? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot more, you could say, further down the chain than, than the really, really big houses because... As I was saying, in many ways, the big house is more of, I suppose, a culture that you belong to than the size of the house. So some of the houses, I just have an example here, would be Kilrush House in Kilrush. And many of the Church of Ireland rectories throughout Clare would have been considered big houses because they were inhabited by members of you know, what was called the ascendancy, the gentry. The houses weren't always particularly big. Some of them were quite small. So it was really all belonging to a particular culture. So I could be living in a small little house and be still top man in the area? Well, you might be top man, but you might be related to the top man. Okay. Or, you know, you might be kind of on visiting terms with the top man. Or your daughter might marry the nephew of the top man or something like that. Okay. That was kind of, it was very much a social thing um, rather than, I suppose, being strictly economic. Okay, so now we get to the servants in the big house. Yeah, I mean, my own area of study has been, um, has focused more on the 18th century, um, which is a challenging area because not a whole lot of sources from the 18th century, from estate papers and so on, actually uh, survive in Ireland. But I was still able to get, you know, a snapshot of, of what life was like for servants in the 18th century particularly in the really in the very big houses which is what you know I was able to see wage books and letters and so on that do survive from that time um and it was a very interesting thing to study I mean it was you know shows again why the past can be more nuanced and complex than we might have been led to believe tell me we all watch the various tv programs nowadays recreating Downton Abbey yeah, and all of those, yeah. yeah. So how how would the servant how would the cast of servants be say in um, Drumolan back in the time? 
As far as I'm aware, um, the Interquin family at various times only tended to um, or tended to favour Protestant servants for the indoor house. So they would have maybe brought them over from England. But on other estates, and I mean, again, I don't know about, I can't, I can't speak for the whole history of the Moland estate, I, I don't know. But in other estates, definitely, the, certainly the lower branches of the indoor servants would have been taken from the local tenantry. So, say the butler, I presume there's a butler in all these houses. The butler, yeah, I think the butler was someone who would have had a lot to do with the family. He would have, you know, been on the, the what you could, a lot of times in the upstairs. So, often a butler and a housekeeper may have been brought over from England or would have been um, kind of recruited more from the the Irish Protestants, the, the kind of lower class of Irish Protestants. Um, in some big houses, though, they did have a local Catholic man who, you know, from the from the estate or whatever, who was the butler. So it it tended to vary, but butlers were, you know, I think very much at the higher level of the the servants. They were probably they were better paid than the housekeeper. All of the male servants were better paid than the female servants, and it was a, a very sought after job. So it could be a local man, but to be more likely someone that was brought over from there would I presume there would be lower class English there wouldn't be from yeah of course they would have been but some uh, some of the families uh, felt more comfortable having Protestants in the actual in, um, in, in when it came to being in the house and also you know maybe meeting the children of the house meeting guests and so on they were more comfortable having a Protestant servant now others weren't and they didn't they did employ Catholics in the house as well and below the butler then, who will be the next person? Well, when you're dealing with an actual, a real, a real big house, you would have had footmen who are kind of an interesting... Um, the footman, I mean, when you see him in TV and films and everything, you see this kind of very plushly dressed with a powdered wig and very kind of ceremonial. But in reality, the footmen actually did quite a lot of jobs around the house. Like they might have helped to wait at table. They could have helped around the kitchen. And uh, but, in my, but the footmen, I think, out of all the servants were really the most that were status symbols. You know, that if you, if you were someone in the world, you had at least one or two powdered footmen preferably over six feet tall they were better paid the more taller and more handsome they were so they were uh i suppose on display for the uh, family were they kind of dual purpose for for display and maybe for other tests well there was always those rumors <laughs> <laughs> that the footmen could be very popular with the ladies of the houses in some cases and i think there is evidence that certainly in certain situations they did play a number of different roles in the households, but it would be very hard to know now really what went on. But certainly they were um, they were they were very much um, sought after for their good looks and things like that. So the footman's position would have been much sought after as well, I presume. Yes, and it was quite well paid. It was better well paid. I mean, when I say quite well paid, I mean in the scale of what the servants were paid. It was it was you know they were better paid certainly than the housemaids and the parlour maids. Um, and there was a bit of a bit of status, and if you were a footman, it also meant that you were in a, a fairly prosperous family. You know, it was, as I said, a, a bit of a status symbol job. Okay, so so tell me, um, okay, we've dealt with the butler who 
clearly was the owner's right-hand man. Well, <laughs> in the house, I think for household matters, yeah. because often they employed agents and stewards as well on the estate okay, to help. Yeah, with, yeah, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, yeah. And the footman who was probably the mistress's right hand <laughs> well, man, maybe. So who comes below that then? Who's next? Well, on the female side, you have the housekeeper, would is is the is the head of the female servants, and she would have dealt directly with the lady of the house quite a lot. And then below her, you have the cook who could also, um, she also would would deal with the mistress of the house, you know, maybe in terms of organising menus, taking orders for meals and so on. And then below that, below that now you have the, the parlour maids um, who would have, you know, really just been cleaning. And actually I've left out an important servant there I'm not quite sure where to put her probably somewhere maybe between the housekeeper and the cook which is the lady's maid and she was the private maid to any you know to the lady of the house and if it was a you know a very big household the the young ladies would have each have their own maid as well and she looked after all of their clothes their jewelry um helped them to dress and so on uh, would they wash themselves in those days? Would they, was there any hygiene or was it... Well, a... there was hygiene, but they did wash themselves. I mean, in the 18th century and also in the 19th century, they did wash themselves much less than we do, including in the upper classes. Um, they wouldn't have bathed anywhere near as often as we do. Uh, they probably wouldn't have washed. I mean, laund- laundry was a huge, was such a difficult job, even if you had servants to do it that uh, they, they certainly, I mean, they wouldn't have washed, you know, changed their underwear every day or anything like that, even even with the aristocracy. So they would, from our perspective, be quite unhygienic. Yeah, smelly but, <laughs> Maybe. Um, but then they would have been cleaner than, you know, the average person out on the farms or the tenantry, because, I mean, things even even things like hot water were luxuries really... In, in the 18th and 19th century for most people. The lower servants, were they locals or were they brought in? Uh, yeah, again, depended on the family. For the most part, they were from the estates I looked at. So examples would be the Donnachmore estate in Tipperary, the Clonbrock estate in Galway. They were locals. But, I th- you know, again, there were some... At, at times, I think the Interquins brought all of their indoor servants from outside the estate or from outside the locality. So it varied, but I think on, on a lot of estates, they were just locals. And these are people who probably wouldn't often meet the family or even at all. You know, the charmaids, the kitchen maids, um, some of the male servants doing more menial jobs around the house. They, they wouldn't really have had much interaction with the families. Where would they stay then? Would they stay in the house or would they stay? They would stay in the house, yes. There would have been servants' quarters, some of which, um, for example, in Castletown, in, in, you know, Castletown House in County Kildare, which is open to the public now and is is publicly owned. Um, you know, part, you can see the old servants' quarters and they were quite big. But again, <laughs> the kind of quarters you had within the servants' quarters depended a lot on your status. So often the housekeeper could have quite a, you know, a nice room. The butler could have quite a nice room, their own sitting room. And whereas, you know, the kitchen maids could all be thrown in together in a little, in a little bedroom. It, you know, it was kind of, it was a very hierarchical kind of system. I remember visiting Strokestown House and I was intrigued by the fact that they had kind of hidden 
the movement of the staff away from the big houses. Was that very common in Ireland? Would that have happened in Drumoland, say? I, I don't I don't know of that happening in Drumoland, but I know in Strokestown, um, yeah, one of the owners did actually build a sort of underground passage because he felt, you know, out of his drawing room window, watching servants coming to and fro was destroying the view. <laughs> um, I don't know how many houses that happened in. I think that I haven't seen many of those kind of underground things, but I think the mentality would have been there that for the most part, the servants were not to be seen. You know, that they, they did everything in terms of running the house, but no one wanted to see them. Um, would, it be, would it be true to say that, say like the men in Strokestown, that the locals would be trying to kill him all the time because of his attitude towards them? No, um, I don't think so. Definitely, if you look at it in terms of political history, there were, you know, before you had, before you had the actual land acts and they came into force and then you had independence and at different times when you had rebellions and agitation and so on. So there would have been, I suppose, flashpoints everywhere. But often um, the families, you know, held because... I suppose they were a part of the locality and they often could hold a lot of loyalty and affection with the local, even the local, you know, Catholic tenantry, like the Dunraven family of Adair Manor would be an example of that. Okay. Tell me, now that we've dealt with the big families, I remember when I was a young lad, when we'd go to the, my father, there was six of us, and my, my father would send us off to help say the bigger farmers there on their land in the summer and some some in some houses you'd be sent to the servant quarters where the servants ate and then in others you'd be dining with the family what cost would, would they be the next line then of gentry in those days i don't think so um i'm not sure but i think after the land acts i think some of the bigger farmers sort of from what I can gather took that role rather than that it was traditionally belonging to them but I don't I don't really know because that's moving more into the 20th century which would be a bit out of kind of my comfort zone okay. but um I'm not you know I mean once once the, these estates were sold the social order changed there's no doubt about that so so, so you're what you're saying is that some farmers then kind of aped the antics of the landowners of a previous era. That's what I suspect you're talking about. Um, I think that that probably did happen a bit. And what about the, tr the, the big merchants in towns then and the traders? What, how was their situation? They um, occupied kind of, uh, I suppose, an unusual social position. I mean, some of these people would have been quite wealthy um they would have been a mix of religions in Ireland but to a large extent because a lot of them were catholic they were very much barred from the big house society you know they weren't they weren't going to dine with the big house people they weren't going to marry their daughters you know there was that distinction there um but as the land acts kind of came into force in the late 19th century a lot of what would have been the sort of catholic middle class of traders and merchants did grow a lot and did grow more prosperous and more um, more influential, but it was only really when the old landlord system kind of died away. And did they actually then just become the 
equivalent of the old landlords. A lot of them, did they? To a certain extent, I think they probably did. Um, I think there was a vacuum left when, when I mean, you know, some of the estates had been in decline for a long time anyway. There had been absentee landlords. But there were many who, who were still in Ireland, you know, before most of their land was sold off or whatever. Um, yeah, I think there was there was a vacuum for a new kind of upper upper influential class to um, to come in. And I think that would have consisted of the wealthier tenant farmers who now own their own farms um, and probably the, the some of the kind of prosperous merchants and traders. And would they have the servants then the same system as... Not quite. I don't think... I think they probably would have had less servants. They would have had servants. They would have had less servants, though. And they probably... It's unlikely they would have had the um, hierarchy of a butler, housekeeper, and so on. Um, it would. They would have had smaller households, but certainly they would have had servants. But again, I'm going outside my, my time range there. Right. Okay, so I'll bring you back then to... We have done into Queens. There must have been other big families. I know that out in Cluny, where we lived for a while, they had the, the remnants of Cluny House. Do you know anything yes, about uh, that? Yes, that was actually, um, that belonged to the Bindon Blood family and sadly was burnt down uh, sometime, I think, in the early 20th century. And it had been a very big house. But both the Bindon and Blood families, and they, they became parts of it, they became the Bindon Bloods because they, they intermarried a few times were a very influential landowning family in Clare. And, um, you know, Clare is, is something I've only really started studying and looking into lately, but certainly you see the same names coming up again and again, like the Vandelaire family of Kildysert, um owned a lot of, you know, they were major landholders in West Clare in the 19th century. Yeah. The Studdard family, they held land throughout the country over a long period of time. So these are families that would have not been aristocracy like the Inchequins or the Dukes of Leinster or the Marquises of Coiningham or anyone like that. Now, the Marquises of Coiningham, of course, up in the Midlands. But these would have been the local gentry. And they would have owned a number of houses, some big, some smaller, but, you know, all fell within the culture of the big house. Would they have been Irish or English? Um, well, I suppose it would... <laughs> I suppose anyone who's born and raised in Ireland is Irish. They, you know, I think the Vandelaire family were actually of Dutch extraction, but um, many of them would have been of English extraction. Many of the families, the Somerville families, stuttered these kind of families. But I think it's difficult to describe someone as Irish or English because... The amount of intermarrying that went on, you know, sometimes you had, sometimes you had Catholics marrying into these families, not very often, but they, you know, it's it's a more, it's too simplistic to call someone, oh, they were an English family or they were an Irish family. Okay, we'll take that. They were, they were neither English nor Irish. Well, I suppose they were Irish, really. I mean, <laughs> um, it depends on how you look at it, but I, I would describe them all as Irish. Uh, our generation would probably look at them a bit differently than maybe your generation. Maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, social history, uh, we just touched on it today, but it can tell us a lot more about the past. 
and it's also good for entertainment I think it's it's one of the more entertaining and kind of fun parts of history as well would you think that we're heading back towards that era with the how is this going into fjord fjord owners like is it are we essentially coming back to tenants and landowners again I would be concerned that that is happening um, I know that people speak about, um, you know, you know, if if you have a rental economy, that that's that could be progressive. But there's always the danger that you could, in fact, what you're going to go into is another type of landlord system. Um, it's certainly something that I think people should be aware of with what's going on at the moment with the housing and everything. Is 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 this what we want for our society? Um, I think it's something definitely to think about. You would think that the what we discussed earlier on was not a healthy or progressive society. Well, no, I, I don't know how you could say it was in any... I mean, obviously, this is just touching on it in, in a very kind of brief way, but when you're talking about a huge number of people working in very difficult and, you know, poor circumstances so that a very small number of people can live a life of leisure and luxury... That's that can never be a healthy society. I agree with you there. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much. And I hope you enjoyed today and that it gave you something to think about. See you again next week. <laughs>